It's podcasting time. My name's Jonathan Isaacson, and I am just another jerk with a podcast that no one will listen to, probably. And today, I want to talk about another question that you might have about me. Or not. Probably not, if we're being honest. But hey, this is my podcast that no one listens to. So I'll pretend that someone might ask this question. And that question is, why English? Well, I was born to white parents in the U.S., duh. Oh, okay, that's not what you meant, right, imaginary inquisitor? Of course not, no. What you might really be wondering is, why teach English? And why teach English in Japan? Well, it was something I just kind of fell into. It's not as though this was my goal from the beginning. As I said before on the previous podcast, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with myself as I neared the end of my university career. I started as a trumpet major. Um, I thought I wanted to do things like play in symphony orchestras, uh, probably teach trumpet lessons because, let's be honest, if you aren't the absolute best of the best as a musician, you're going to have to teach lessons to make ends meet. That's just the way music, the music world works. It's really hard to be a professional musician. It's kind of like an athlete, to be honest. You've got to be really, really good to, just, to do that as your one thing. So, like I said, music turned out that wasn't what I wanted to do with myself. Went on to a history degree, thought I was... Uh, maybe museum work, restoration, preservation, that kind of thing. Talked about that in the previous episode. And obviously that's not what I ended up doing. And so the whole JET ALT thing happened. It was just one of those things that was an opportunity that afforded me a chance to live in a new country and to do something that seemed at the time pretty easy. I guess it's worth mentioning that before I uh, came here to Japan, the only time I had ever left the U.S. was after my third year of university. That was the first time I'd ever left the U.S. That was when I got my passport for the first time. And that was on a visit to Japan with a group from my university. It was part of that whole Freeman Foundation grant that we got that I mentioned uh, that started our Japanese language program and some other things. Part of that was for those of us who were the roommates of the students from Waseda was a trip to Japan. So my first trip out of the U.S. was a trip to Japan, and that's where I ended up living. And so like I say, it was a, a chance that afforded me a opportunity to live in a new country and to do something that, like I say, at the time seemed pretty easy. And it was easy, if pretty boring, a lot of the time, at least at the junior high school, for those first three years. And like I said, I was, I, I, when I finished those three years, I knew I wasn't done with Japan. And if we're being perfectly honest, teaching English is the easiest way to stay in Japan. Um, it's pretty easy to find jobs teaching at Eikaiwa or in uh, dispatch companies as ALTs for junior highs and, and elementary schools. Now, Eikaiwa 
literally translates as English conversation. And Eikaiwa schools are all over Japan. You can find all kinds of people taking English language classes. Um, they're not really going for super intensive, I want to go live and work in America, Australia, England, places like that. Or, you know, Singapore, for that matter, because a lot of a lot of Japanese people, if they're going to use English, it's going to be with other uh, people from East Asia, because it's kind of the lingua franca of, of the world, you know. And so there obviously are some people who go to Eikaiwa with those goals in mind to become conversational so they can go work or travel in places, other parts of the world. But the majority of people taking English language lessons in uh, Japan, English conversation school attendees, they're there as much for the socialization as they are for anything like really serious study. And that's fine if you know that going in as a teacher. And I kind of did. And it was a good experience, so I can say I've done it. But it really just wasn't for me. Um, I was teaching largely courses of middle-aged and older, mostly women, talking about their families. Uh, there were a few women who would talk about their health problems all the time, and that was just not really what I wanted to do every day. I mean, obviously there are a few older men too, but the majority of people who go to at least this Eikaiwa, the English conversation school I taught at, the majority were women. And again, usually middle-aged and older because they're the ones, you know, they've got the money, they've got the time. It's a good hobby for them. So great. Wasn't for me. And there were a handful of kids classes and you know, I had taught elementary school, and again, those were okay, but not really my favorite age group to deal with. Um, but I did it. It was okay. The thing, though, was while I was doing that a Kiowa, I also got to teach at the university, the local university, the uh, School of Education. So, the in it, just like American universities. Many Japanese universities have adjuncts and part-timers to fill in a lot of course of like uh, basic education courses and gen eds and things like that. And in a lot of schools, that comes down to the required English courses. And my Eikaiwa, my English conversation school, had a contract with the um, University of Education. And the Eikaiwa teachers, the converse, English conversation teachers, the native teachers, we would go to the university once or twice a week and teach the university students. And that was something I found out that I really liked. I liked teaching these people, these young adults, you know, 18, 19 years old primarily. And there was one thing I really discovered that I really liked about it, and that there's a fixed endpoint. With the majority of English conversation classes, at least in my experience at the school I was teaching at, and the, when I've talked to other people who worked in the Eikaiwa, a lot of times there's no end game. There's no fixed end to a course. It just keeps going and going and going and going until the people who are taking decide, okay, I don't have time, I don't have money, I don't have interest, 
So some of the people end up taking Eikaiwa lessons for decades, literally decades. I taught a few people at the English conversation school that I worked at. They had been going to that same school for well over 10 years, some of them 20. I, th I think probably at this point, if they're still going, a few of them, I can imagine still are, would be there well over 30 years. And and that's just kind of how a lot of English conversation schools work. There's no end, you, which again, as with most things, there are pluses, there are minuses. Having an end point is good if it's not the most conversational group, if, if it's not a group that has a lot of give and take, if it's a lot of we want you to tell us what to do and we'll do these fixed units, having an endpoint is good. And if there's no endpoint, that kind of lesson can be very stressful. If it's a good fun class, a class that has a lot to talk about and the students want to talk a lot, then sure, teaching them for years on end could be great. It could be a lot of fun. But if they don't have a lot to talk about, if their level is very low and they say the same thing every week, week after week, because I had a few students who would tell me the same story every week, it seemed, or at least once a month, they would tell the same stories. And it just, it gets old. It gets tough if that's not really what you want to do. And it wasn't what I really wanted to do. But like I say, I found these university courses that I was teaching. Hey, I like this age group. It's a fun age group to teach. Um, there is an end point. It's one semester or maybe one year. And then they go off and you get a new group. And I realized, hey, this is, I, I like teaching. This is a, a, a style of teaching that I feel more inclined towards. And so I decided, okay, I think I want to move in to teach higher ed at this point, tertiary education. Um, and so I was able to find a job working still in Hokkaido at this point, working at a semmongakko in Japanese, a professional school, trade school, which are much, much more common here in Japan than they are in the U.S. And I was at a trade school that was primarily focused on uh, medical-related fields. Uh, the best way to describe it is it was I was teaching everyone at the hospital who wasn't a doctor. I had We had nurses at our school. We had um, people who worked in the pharmacy. We had people who worked at the um, reception desks, places like that, the people who were dealing with the equipment in the hospital, like the people who would fix and maintain all the dialysis machines and, and EKG machines and all those kind of things. Um, you know, we had people who were making prosthetics and orthotics. So all these medical-related fields, EMTs, they were also there. And so I was teaching there, um, and then I guess they added the same company that ran that school, added a music and performing arts school in the same area, so I ended up teaching them too. And that's a whole other story, talking about teaching these students who want to be rock and roll bass players and guitarists and vocalists and drummers, they were not the most enthused about English courses. Not surprising. Um, but the medical professional, they were better. They were as far as having motivation to learn English because they had more of an actual need for it, some of them. Uh, and they were more 
traditionally studious. I mean, they were better they were better equipped for standard sit down in, in in a desk for sixty minute or ninety minute class kind of students. The music students weren't really most of them weren't really kind of geared that way that they wanted to sit down in a and listen to me tell them what to do and then them try to do it for 90 minutes that it didn't work for a lot of them but so like i say i get this job at the um professional school so it's again that's that same age group it's that 18 19 year old students a few a little older but kind of that late teens early 20s and so at the same time i decide okay this is something that if I'm going to do this long term, I need to have at least a master's degree. So I did a little re- did some research and found um, an online MA in TESOL. Now TESOL, probably a term that a lot of you don't know, it's teaching English to speakers of other languages. It's kind of the umbrella term for what a lot of people know as the uh, ESL community. Because ESL is one small portion of TESOL. So ESL is, um, what is it? English as a second language, which is, say, part of TESOL. And I don't teach ESL. I teach EFL here in Japan, English as a foreign language, not a second language. ESL, for those of you who care, is people who are living in an English-speaking environment and learning English for everyday uh, interactions. So people who live in the U.S., live in England, live in Australia, who are learning English for everyday life. They've, they're immigrants to the U.S., immigrants to the U.K., immigrants to Australia. They are probably taking ESL courses if they're taking English courses. I teach EFL. I teach English as a foreign language. So people who are learning English probably in their native country, and English is just kind of a thing that they might use somewhere else predominantly. That's EFL. That's, I mean, I get more in depth than that if someone cares about that someday, but for right now, that's good enough. So, like I said, I get my master's in TESOL, uh, teaching English to speakers of other languages. I get my master's in that, and I work for about, what was it, five years at the, at the uh, professional school, at the trade school. And it was good. Um, it was a good first step for kind of working in this post-secondary education area of English teaching. Uh, but there wasn't a lot of freedom. There was a pretty set uh, curriculum. You ha- had to use this one textbook. And it was a pretty, it, there wasn't a lot of flexibility in what I could do. So it was good. Say it was a good first step. And I'm glad I worked there. It allowed me to live in Sapporo for a I'd like to say about five years. Um, Sapporo, sidebar, if you ever get a chance, please visit it. It's a wonderful, wonderful city. Um, don't go right now. Uh, we're having a lot of issues with the coronavirus in Japan, but hopefully that will get cleared up relatively soon and tourism can retur- re- can uh, resume as normal eventually, hopefully. But like I say, Sapporo, great place. Go visit it. Um, so yeah, I worked in Sapporo for about Five, say not about four or five years. It was exactly five years. Um, that was interesting moving in and out of Sapporo just time wise. But uh, yeah, so moved to Sapporo, did that. And then, so I've got my master's now. Now it's time to find jobs at actual university 
level, not this professional school. So I find a job in the Tokyo area, in Saitama, which is a little bit to the northwest of Tokyo. Um, if you're looking at a map, it's, it's the prefecture the, just to the northwest of Tokyo. And it was a good job, but I didn't like living in Tokyo. It was nice because we had English majors. So I was teaching students who, well, some of them wanted to learn English. Some, not all of them did. And why is that? So at the school I was teaching, a lot of students, if they didn't know what else to major in, they would choose, okay, I'll major in English, which led us to some interesting issues with supposedly students with degrees in English who couldn't speak a word of the language. Um, and that's, that's another issue that, I mean, that's way above my pay grade. But that was certainly an issue we dealt with pretty frequently as the teaching staff. It's like, these guys are English majors. What are they, what are they doing here? I wish we could have given them support to move to something that was actually of interest to them. But again, way outside my pay grade, way above what I was really able and allowed to do. But overall, most of the students in our English department, they wanted to be there. They had some intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation as well to learn English. And it was, like I say, a good job. I liked most of my students. You're never going to like all your students. There are always going to be a few who are just frustrating and you wish you could figure out how to communicate with them better and reach them and say, what what do what should I do to help you? What can I do to help you get the most out of your experiences? And some of those students you just can't get to in the amount of time you have with them. But those students were fewer than the students I really enjoyed. So I'm teaching English in we're kind of a it was it was like I say, it was English majors and we had this large group of native English speakers primarily Americans, um, but our, our, our boss was Canadian, and then there were a few other non-Americans who came during my four years there, but um, by and large, American English speakers. And we taught the four basic skills. We taught the, um, the reading, writing, speaking, and listening courses. And I'll talk about this in a little bit, and there are some problems with this, this setup, but as a work environment for me, it was a good one. I had a lot of nice coworkers. I had a good, uh, say mostly good students. It was a good time, but four years in the Tokyo area was enough, and I was able to find a job this, about a year, one, one year ago now, I've been in my current job for one year. Back in Tohoku, back in the northwest, sorry, northeast, what am I saying? Northeast of Japan. And uh, like I say, it's been one year. It's a very different type of teaching than I did the past four years. And so far, I'm enjoying it. Um, I teach general uh, general ed, not general ed, yeah, general ed. Uh, these are required, students at my university now are required to take two years of a foreign language. Most of them take English because 
that's what they all have taken in high school, junior high school, and now, well, a lot, most of them, I think, now in elementary school have had some English as well. And it is, like I say, it's required. So most of them, English is an easy one, so they'll take English for two years. We also offer, what do we offer? Chinese, Korean, I think German, I want to say, is our other language. I think those are, I think we have the four languages. Um, but most everyone takes English. And they're general education requirements. So it's a much more mixed bag as far as what I'm teaching now. There are positives compared to what I was teaching before, which was small classes and similar ability levels versus larger classes with a very wide range of ability levels within one class. But now, in my current job, I have the most freedom I've ever had to do what I want with my class. I can choose my textbook, do whatever I want. So overall, it's a good position. Um, so like I said, to be perfectly honest, getting into English teaching, it's kind of started out as a lark. I mean, okay, maybe not a lark, but I was, I was taking an opportunity afforded to me in, you know, in my privilege as a white American native English speaking universe, university graduate. There's a lot of privilege wrapped up into that, even living and working in Japan. Um, and that may be something I can talk about later, like in a different podcast, the idea of native speakerism and how that works in Japan. Um, so like I say, I, I took this opportunity afforded me in all of this privilege that I have. And it has, I enjoy my work and it has afforded me a comfortable lifestyle. It has afforded me, uh, it has been able to, I've been able to give my family a comfortable lifestyle. So I'm very happy for that. But I know that EFL, this English as a foreign language in particular, is a field not without its issues. And this is something I actually think about pretty often. And what, what kind of issues am I talking about? I'm talking about the social and linguistic uh, hegemony of English, especially of native English. Why? Why do Japanese students most of whom are never going to spend long periods of time in English language settings. Why do they need to take English courses? And why do their teachers need to be native English speakers? And that's actually something I don't think needs to be the case. I don't think teachers need to be native English speakers. And most professionals in this field agree with that. They don't think that the teachers need to be native English speakers. But a lot of students, that's kind of their expectations. Now, my previous school, like I said, the native, this large group of native English speakers, we were, we were responsible for a lot of their basic, the four skills, the reading, writing, speaking, listening courses. We, were, we taught most of those, and the Japanese English teachers taught a lot of the grammar courses. And that was something that always kind of sat strange with me. I don't I don't like the idea of dividing the the responsibilities, the duties of the American say for my, in that case mostly American English teachers and Japanese English teachers. I don't like that. That's 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 actually very problematic. There's that word. I know some people hate it, but it is. It's problematic to divide the the responsibilities of English teachers that way. 
My current school, I do feel a little better about me being here as a, a, a native English speaker because we're not, we don't push native English teachers as our, as, we're not a selling point. And in fact, there aren't that many native English speakers. Um, of our full-time staff, let's see, we have about what, six or seven, six or seven teachers and half of us are Americans and the other half are not. There's Okay, I guess yeah. There's there's seven full-time uh, staff, full-time English teachers, three Americans, three Japanese, and one who is from uh, Taiwan, I believe. Yes. So we have a very we have a much more mixed teaching staff, and they everyone can teach English. You know, there's everyone is equally able to teach English courses, and our part-timers are also very a mix of native speakers and people from. Thailand, from Korea. Um, trying to think, I think we might have had someone from no, no, okay, a couple from Thailand. So okay, we have a much more mixed um, group of teachers, and so English is. It's still the question of why do they have to learn English? I mean, they don't have to learn English, but the vast majority of students want that. That's the language they take because that's what they've learned. So the idea of maybe learning language as a just it's good for you as a as a human being it develops your thinking it develops your own language skills and your native language it's easier to to sell that point when we're not pushing native speakers as the only model so like I say I feel better about that aspect in my current job my old job like I say I I love I the my coworkers, I loved them. They were great, and I have no nothing bad about them as a whole. It's just the and it's more of a systematic issue in a lot of actually a lot of the world. Honestly, this is a debate that's going on in the English uh, teaching community in the TESOL community. What is the role of a native speaker? What is the role of English in general, especially outside of the English speaking uh, countries like the U.S. like the UK, like Australia, New Zealand, Canada. So, um, yeah, say if you have any more questions about this kind of thing, please feel free. Send me an email um, at what is it? Just another jerk podcast at gmail. That's just another jerk podcast at gmail.com. So, on that note, I'm a bounce. Peace. <laughs>